what role do aesthetics play in politics, mm. right? Like this is potentially dangerous territory, right? Because yeah. the goal of fascism is to replace politics with aesthetics, right? That's all they have. They just have these inspiring symbols and stories and on a policy level, it makes no fucking sense and the people are literally insane, but they have compelling aesthetics. So uh, on some level to recruit people to a political movement to get them interested in something, it's um, it's a form of marketing, you know, it's advertising, Absolutely. it's propaganda, yeah. it's, um, it's got to look appealing in the entry levels to just get people to like click, uh, open it in a tab to, uh, to, to accept the pamphlet. How do we walk this tightrope where you want to have an attractive presentation, but you don't want that to be the end all be all of the program? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good question. I think this is kind of dangerous territory. And I've, I don't know, gotten people a little bit annoyed at me in different ways in the past in talking about this subject. I think you had mentioned that you came across this other podcast episode that I did a while back and, and we kind of went into this on that one. And that was excellent episode, by the way. Oh, cool. Yeah. Silent direction. Yeah. Yeah. yeah those were really I'm, good. I'm glad that it holds up, but yeah, that, those are some menswear friends of mine. And, and that was kind of our, our topic on that episode was style, like clothing, fashion and left leftist politics. So we kind of got into it there. And so to reach back to this scenario that I was talking about before, where I tried to create this uh, lifting strength training group within the San Francisco DSA, I would get some pushback from different, mostly not from people in my local. It was like people online who I'd never met before, which is you know usually how these things go. But I got a couple, I got people mad at me about this a few times because I don't want to be like, too uncharitable, but I thought it was dumb. So, I mean, the the argument, I guess, was that it was ableist um, to say, like, we need to be physically fit in order to be better leftists. And, I mean, I follow the logic of what they're saying. I mean, my counter would be that uh, disability and whatever that means is not a bar to physical training, right? I mean, if you're in a wheelchair, we'll have you do pull-ups. If you got no arms, we'll have you squat or something on a machine like that is totally normal to me i mean we all have different advantages and disadvantages whether they qualify as disability or not and so i, I guess my answer is is kind of along those same lines right i do think looking good and looking cool and looking appealing is valuable to any political movement and i think that we can look at left-wing movements from the past and they understood that you know we all have seen Soviet propaganda that looked hella cool. And I, I mean, I still every so often, I'll come across these same images of, of these like Soviet posters about physical fitness. And, and they'll say, you know, these very kind of stilted in translation phrases about like the, the strong man is good for his society or whatever. Um, you know, like that, the image of, of new Soviet man was that he was learned, and he was politically committed, and that he was physically fit. And that is a really compelling image. And then we can talk about like the Black Panthers, for instance, as a movement very much known for its aesthetics, among other things. But like they had an image that they projected that was recognizable that- It's badass. <laughs> it's cool, yeah. right? It made you want to, I mean, maybe not to people who were so opposed to what they stood for or just like deeply racist, but- you know, they, they, it endures even now, like we look at them in their berets and holding the rifles and their leather jackets. And we're like, that's cool as fuck. Like, I want to know what's up with that. Yeah. I mean, and to the point where those aesthetics resonate 
totally separately, which is dangerous, right? Like you're getting at where you had during yeah, yeah. like 2020, um, maybe people will remember there was this incident where there was some group, they were calling themselves like the new Black Panthers or something. And they kind of had those aesthetics where they were had leather jackets and guns and they marched, but then like people looked into it and it turned out they were just totally astro. They were like actors. They were totally fake and were not a political group at all. Um, so a lot to kind of take away from that, but yeah, I mean, I think the danger is if you, there's a lot implicit in saying like, well, it's good to look good. You know, it's good for your political movement if you're appealing aesthetically. And then people say, well, what does that mean? Like I am, trans or queer disabled or i'm outside the mainstream conception of looking good or looking cool so therefore what you're saying is exclusionary to me and i sympathize with that but i mean i don't think it has to be that way i think it's more about making the most of what we've got right and you know it's like saying well it's it's like bourgeois uh, values to tell me i should shower and groom myself and it's like i I, maybe in some way but bottom line is nobody's going to want to be around me if i'm not taking a shower (laughs) so like there's no reason i can't take a fucking shower and not smell bad and not be like off-putting to people so i'm going to do my best to not be off-putting now there's only so much i can do like this is my face i hope it's appealing to people but like i can't change it and i'm not going to and then with your physique it, it, it's it's again it's thorny because you can change it to an extent um and this is like what we were getting into earlier what the limits of that are who knows or what resources you have to put effort into that i, I don't know those are those are question marks but i do think that it is kind of incumbent on us if we're serious about our project to i don't know looks max in some sense right or like <laughs> put some points into that shit i think it it helps now again like how much uh, effort you you owe it to the, the movement to put into that i don't know you got to figure that out but i don't think it's worthless and i i do think there is kind of a generalized vibe in part of the left that i've had experience with that has that attitude where it's like this is it's a waste of time you know it's just consumerism or it's individualism or whatever it's something i don't want to be associated with the the pursuit of like being aesthetically appealing, like we reject that. And I relate because I used to think that way very much so. Like very, I think it's very baby with the bathwater and I think we need to get away from that and understand that image has power. And our goal, our broad goal, right, as leftists, and this is a really fundamental thing that I think people sometimes call themselves leftists, but they don't agree with. It's like, our goal is to take power. It's not to be nice or whatever, else it's to take power and to remake society by taking power and if you want to take power uh i think you know there's many many steps on that road and it's we're very very far away at this point from taking power but i think having appealing aesthetics is part of that and i do think that leftist movements of the past and successful revolutions of the past had people who understood this and it would be to our detriment to dismiss this stuff and to not put any effort into it 
I completely, I completely agree. I think there's uh, my contrarian side is telling me that um, we live in a majoritarian democracy, and if this is a movement of people who are antisocial and don't shower, then it's not going to get very far. You know, it's it's important to have something that appears uh, interesting and attractive that people want to be a part of. And part of the the difficulty of moving from being a fringe marginal group to having a mass movement is that a lot of times the people who collect on the margins of radical groups are um, sometimes they're there because they want to be on the fringe of society. Mm. You know, they may be driven by a personal motivation or something like that. And so a lot of these antisocial behaviors that uh, come out of like, well, I'm not going to shower because of uh, whatever, whatever. It's like that is, uh, it's difficult to like be next to you in a picket line if you haven't bathed in a week or that is a different type of behavior. I think in, when people reference these things being ableist or, or exclusionary, I think it, it really is about a plurality of aesthetics that there should be, uh, if your aesthetic preference is to do X, then you should be able to do that. And what we're saying is that, you know, somebody else whose uh, preference is A, B, and C, that there should be a visible uh, content creator, influencer type of brand that creates the on-ramp to left politics from people who share those interests. So if you're just interested in physical fitness, there should be a few people who, if they have left political commitments, are vocal and visible in that space to just introduce it to like literally put it into your newsfeed to offer a different perspective, right? We're, we're talking about overlapping nodes in a network diagram that then become on ramps to political activity later. I had initially envisioned this podcast of the two of us maybe on the squat machine and we would just <laughs> have mics and <laughs> between sets we would talk about the left and physical fitness. So maybe maybe that's a second follow-up episode because uh, the audio would just be terrible. But um, in terms of branding, one of the things that I'm really interested in, in the last few years is that there's these young people who have recently become politicized, mostly through memes, through online subcultures. And you'll see that they'll make, for example, a political compass, and it has like a dozen different characters in it. And they spread them across the x-axis and the y-axis. And they say like, okay, well, Lenin goes up here, and then Vosh goes over there. And then uh, we have Mao in this corner, and we have Stalin in that corner. And then I'll also throw in uh, Destiny, and I'll throw in Hassan. On Piker. And in their political imagination, these influencers, these content creators are in some way comparable to the historical mm -hmm. figures, right? So what you're seeing is young people sketching out possible political identities for who they want to grow into. And it seems to me that there's a very particular noticeable lack of left-wing content creators who are vocally left about their political commitments uh, and then are also into physical fitness. I can think mm -hmm. of a handful of people. A few have popped up on YouTube or TikTok, but haven't really stuck around. Um, but both you and I have been posting a lot of gym selfies recently. So <laughs> I've been really looking forward to the podcast because I don't get to talk about this stuff with a lot of people. It's funny, you know, when you brought this up and, and mentioned to me some of the ideas you were kicking around for it, uh, it really resonated with me uh, in terms of things that I had been thinking about several years ago, I guess 2018 or so was the maybe the height of, of this for me in terms of trying to come up with some totalizing theory about physical culture, I guess, and the left. Mm. Um, and the culmination of that for me, I think, was I was living in San Francisco at the time, and I was very active in the San Francisco DSA. And I tried to create a kind of volunteer 
run fitness group within the DSA chapter. And so I wrote like a little kind of manifesto where I, I pitched it and I explained why I felt this was important. And it had a lot in common with the things you had mentioned to me about not ceding this territory to the right wing. And if we take ourselves seriously as revolutionaries or activists or what have you, then part of that is intellectual and mental education. And part of it has to be phys physical education as the other side of that coin. So I stood up and I, I said all these things and it got a pretty enthusiastic response. People in that moment in the meeting, right? People applauded for it. Um, and I kind of worked out some logistics where I had this gym that let us use the space when they weren't using it for a small fee, which eventually kind of fell apart. And then I moved to doing it in a, in a public park for no fee. But anyway, people had a lot more enthusiasm for it when it wasn't actually time to show up and do it. Um, <laughs> so I, I did this thing for a while. And I don't know, I hope that some people got some things out of it. Like I, I ran this group and it was like once a week, whoever showed up would show up and I would kind of lead them through a workout. And, and sometimes I had some other DSA people who were experienced that would help me kind of coach. What kind of stuff were you doing for that? I mean, when we had the gym, I was trying to teach people how to lift. I was teaching them yeah. use, to use barbells. I, I would try to have them squat and deadlift and, and press and, and do all that stuff to whatever ability they, they had. Right. I mean, I have coached informally various friends many times at this point over the years. I mean, I've been doing this in different ways for 13 or 14 years now. Um, but I've never been a coach. I never charged people money. I never like had a business doing this, but I'm just the guy who has read a lot, who has tried a lot of different things, who posted on a lot of forums, who has recorded myself doing things and improved my technique and had the privilege, uh, to be coached by some really wise and knowledgeable people over the years. So anyway, I was just like, look, I'm, I'm just your friend. I'm just uh, some guy, I'm, I'm volunteering my knowledge and take it or leave it. I'll tell you what I know and I'll tell you what I think you should do. So we were doing that in the gym and then we lost the gym. And so then we were just doing these body weight calisthenics workouts in the park. Yeah, it was fun. But I eventually, I don't know, all told how long this ran, some months, but um, it was just so few people showing up. Um, and I try, I would bring it up again at the meetings and again, people would be like, yeah, this is awesome. But the people who said it was awesome were not the people necessarily who would show up and do it. And so it was like, I don't know if I'm going to put this much effort into a thing anymore that like maybe two or three people are, are showing up for. But yeah, at that point, it really felt valuable and important. And I think in theory, it, it still is like, there's a lot of things wrong with mainstream fitness culture, right, that I can connect to capitalism. So yeah, I think that that's still a problem in need of a solution. But it was tough for me to solve it. <laughs> Certainly, certainly. I mean, I find when you go with a friend, there's mm. a forcing mechanism. It's almost like one of the things that keeps people showing back up to World of Warcraft raids is that, uh, well, I don't particularly feel like playing tonight, but all my friends, I already said I'm going to go, right? It's like, if you make plans with your friends to go to a bar or a restaurant or something, it's like, kind of not feeling it this evening, but I don't want to disappoint Mike and Joe and whoever. Yeah, so that the, the social aspect is very important, but it is really difficult to carve out the time. You do actually have to prioritize it. And I've been thinking about that topic specifically in reference to 
the left because so much of what I think about now that structures my day-to-day life is just, I'm constantly thinking about these flows of materials of like literally just in a very simple sense of like how to get enough protein of how not to be in a food desert. And I'm very aware of the infrastructure and the certain part of New York that I live in and how it's sometimes difficult to get quality nutrition. And when I can carve out the time and having to manage my work schedule and all of these things to allow for you to train in the way that you need to, to be healthy and, and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a big commitment that uh, just having a social connection to people is, is sometimes just not enough. That said, I have been working out in, I'm going to, if I mention the name of the gym, I will redact it from the podcast because it's a very, it's a small anomalous thing and they have a gym and you can go and work out there. And there's this incredible intimacy and vulnerability of like, yes. if you are going to crush yourself with a weight and your friend lifts it off to you, it's kind of like a trust fall almost, yes. but it does really build a lot of uh, camaraderie or solidarity. Um, but okay, before I lose track of this thing, the idea of a contested topic, there's been a lot of think pieces and a lot of stuff written about this recently that an interest in fitness has become an on-ramp, you know, quote, quote, on-ramp to right-wing movements. In the later part of this podcast, we can explore some of those contradictions and and why that is correct or incorrect. But I, I do think that there's, we should not give up that if you want to look good and feel good, that that is not a conservative idea or if you want to present in a certain way or you want to craft your body and make something aesthetic that's not a conservative idea a lot of times when people come when you're talking about training someone to squat for the first time or to to lift a heavy weight for the first time they're amazed by how good they feel after and they haven't their body hasn't done this and the accumulated knowledge of doing this for 10 years uh, you can just show someone the proper form and they feel incredible the next day and then they'll send you a text like Thank you for showing me that. I feel so much healthier. I slept so much better. I'm so much more productive and present in my relationships because I feel healthier. Yeah. Those things are really important for quality of life. And those are not conservative things. Those are things that the left should really embrace and care about, I think. For sure. I mean, of course, on one level, it's it, it's absurd to say that exercise, physical training is is right wing, but it, it does make sense in terms of the way it's contextualized and fed to us, right? And this goes back to what we were just talking about in terms of what is the environment in which we're undertaking these pursuits. Under the standard fitness journey in our society involves going to a, a quote unquote globo gym, right? And it's a very individualist place yes. where people don't know each other. Everybody has their headphones in. Nobody wants to make eye contact because that's weird. Everybody is full of insecurities that have maybe been created or heightened by the advertising industry that then is trying to sell you these solutions, right? And uh, there's all these things we can get into in terms of the food environment, like you're saying. And then it's like, on the one hand, here's all this delicious, cheap junk food. And the other hand, here's the gym where you're going to go and perform some kind of this like ritualistic kind of penance for eating that food, right? But bottom line is it's about by like spending your way into um, righteousness in some way. And it's this very single-minded or or individualist-minded way of, of doing it. And I've had the good fortune at a few different points, it's been a while, 
to find myself in the environment, in a type of environment like the one I think that you were talking about, where it was like a barbell club run out of, I mean, I was a member of this thing in Philly years ago where it was run out of a storage unit and it was a small group of people and you paid a like $10 a month and you would get a key to the storage unit and the unit had a squat stand and a barbell and a bunch of plates. Oh, and damn. You could, you could, yeah, you could go whenever you want. You could go at midnight and sometimes you'd go at midnight and there's somebody else and, and he's squatting too. And it's just such a different experience when it's people that you start to recognize and you know each other and it's like, oh, we're both squatting and I'm going to spot you or I'm going to cheer for your PR or whatever. And yeah, I found myself in a couple of those environments over the years. And it's funny now to look back because these were definitely not, I mean, they weren't political environments and the people that I was training with were not left wing, but I was not really as politicized then. I mean, looking back, some of these people were definitely right wing, but it didn't matter in that environment. You know, like we forged these kind of bonds. I mean, there's something kind of, I want to say martial about it, right? Like you're training as though you're going to war or something, but these are your, are your brothers and sisters. And yeah, they're going to pull off that weight off your chest. That's going to crush you, or they're going to cheer for you. And yeah, it's just night and day. So, I mean, I think the environment really makes a difference. And then it's like, what is the purpose of the training that I'm undergoing? Is it somehow to become more enlightened, more capable in order to engage in collective struggle? Or is it because I want to be strong in order to like, be the strongest guy so I can kind of oppress other people? You know, I mean, these are huge simplifications. But of, of course, the it is contested ground. And um, it doesn't have to be one way or the other. But largely the way the average person encounters this stuff is in this kind of neoliberal context, which I think makes sense that it's going to lead people to making that connection between training and right-wing politics, particularly strength training. You know, we're now in 2022 and we've had 40 years of neoliberalism and uh, that has been a very bad period for the left, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of deflated hopes and um, especially recently people are feeling, I think, uh, pretty defeated and, and trying to muster the strength. When you're in a bad political period where there are not a lot of possibilities on the horizon, one of the things that you can do is just take care of yourself. That's very manageable, right? You can Jordan Peterson clean your room. Yeah. And we see people do similar things with their body where, you know, I can't really organize my workplace. I don't have much hope for the future politically or for my family or moving up in the world or uh, attaining a middle-class life. I'm always just going to be in grinding poverty. But the one thing that I have is this, I can kind of manage my own body and I can go to the gym and I can get some aggression out and you have this very individualized solution because there's there's no other possibility for like developing or flourishing or feeling like you have success. So you end up organizing your life in such a way where it's, I'm going to put 2.5 pounds on the big lift this week and I'm going to feel a little bit better about myself and I know yeah. I'm going to make progress. And that kind of trap of just purely individual self-improvement, uh, you can really get stuck in it, especially when there's no other alternative. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I think a useful term for this subject is locus of control, which is something mm. that I've come across in, in reading about this kind of stuff, where it's basically your mental model of what is affecting the outcomes in your life. Uh, so people, and, and I'm kind of vaguely remembering some things I've read a long time ago, so don't quote me on this, but if you have an internal locus of control with regard to some domain, it means you feel that you're able to affect the outcomes versus an external locus of control is you feel that you you're not and that it, things are just happening to you. And 
to some extent, this is a, a left-wing, right-wing kind of split in terms of how you view the world, right? If you're, it's why you end up with these people who are down on their luck, having a difficult life. Uh, they've been handed a raw deal, and yet they still identify as libertarian because they've bought into this kind of totalizing internal locus of control. Or, you know, they blame other people who are worse off than them. It's like, well, you you're responsible for that. Versus leftists. I think in general are leftists because they're engaging in this kind of systemic thinking and they can see these forces at work. But then when you apply that to kind of measurable outcomes in fitness, the, the, the one, um, study that I'm remembering showed that they kind of interviewed people to get their, put them on this scale in terms of whether they had more internal or external thinking and people do better when they have that internal locus of control, when they, their mental model is that like, well, I can affect this. And, there's a lot of things that, a lot of variables here, right? But I always find that an interesting tension between, I guess, the kind of pursuit of individual improvement in physical attributes and then these kind of systemic way of thinking that, that we as leftists want to analyze the world. I'm going to steer us into internet topics in a second here. But I think um, there's more people who are realizing that they are really not in control of their lives now. Like in the advanced world, after 40 years of neoliberalism and austerity, no matter how much of a bootstrapping entrepreneur you are, it just it's very clear that wealth and resources are trending to be extremely polarized. And it doesn't matter how disciplined or how fastidious or how cunning you are. It's just the old way of doing things is just it's kind of coming apart at the seams. So those, those are the opportunities, right? The center is kind of, it's, it's coming apart. Uh, it's fragmenting because the mainstream way of doing things is working for less and less people. That's becoming more and more obvious. And so they're shedding to the political fringe. And so people are kind of opting out of the establishment way of doing things. And you see that crop up on the right and on the left. Yeah. So I think that um, maybe there's going to be more people who kind of feel like things are happening to them because, you know, they didn't personally have a hand in 2008. Their uh, mortgage was sold to somebody and then repackaged and then divided up into a million abstract securities. And then their house was taken away. And, you know, they didn't have much to do with that, this, you know, abstract financial mechanism. So for more people, more things just seem to be happening to them. And uh, maybe that will be a, a societal shift in the way that we are thinking about these things. I think it for sure could, but I think it's not, um, it's contingent still, right? It's not necessarily going to play out that way because, you know, like I was kind of getting at a minute ago, I think you'll, you'll have people who things are going badly for them, but that doesn't really uh, alter their ideology. I think it maybe makes them potentially able to to be open to being radicalized or propagandized towards a different analysis but not necessarily you know i guess that is kind of our our opportunity as as organizers on the left to kind of win these people over but i think we we can't assume that it's a it's a done deal because oh things are getting worse so people are going to come over to our side sure you know sure. i think maybe i used to think of it more that way and then ran into a lot of disappointment and had to kind of revise my way of <laughs> worst thinking. Worstism is, yeah, yeah. No, the worse things get, the worse they get. Sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, we've had them getting worse for a while. Maybe we should try making them better. I, I think yeah. that sounds like a good idea. Yes. No, I, I absolutely know what you mean that people in some cases in uh, moments of crisis, they double down on their ideology. It's like, oh, this isn't working. I just need to try it even harder. But I think what I've learned and what I've tried to uh, map in the research of the last few years is as young people move through these political ideas, they do kind of 
zigzag all over the political compass. And the thing that allows them to cross from right to left or left to right or, or whatever direction is that there are these nodes of contested ideas that if they're really into fitness and maybe they got into that through right-wing politics, they're probably going to hang out in this holding pattern just around fitness as they abandon the right-wing politics. And so what is very strategic and necessary is that there are people who are in that space who have other political commitments, and then through this crossover node in the network diagram, they can then be educated into better political ideas. And so I, I feel like that is my role in this ecosystem of being like in the world of commentary and in art. Um, it's not to make things that are of a mass scale, but to try and anticipate like, what are these really targeted spaces for intervention? And um, I think, you know, the the lack of people who are involved in this space kind of makes it a, a vulnerability. So yeah, being vocal about that and um, yeah, just talking about your experience and being like, I'm on the left and I'm also involved in this and I think it's fun. It's like, that's hugely influential for a whole yeah. variety of young people who are, are browsing social media right now. No, I yeah. mean, that makes perfect sense. And that resonates with me a lot. I mean, I have drifted a, a little bit away from trying to tell people what to do. <laughs> um, I, I was maybe a little bit more zealous about that in many ways when I was younger. So yeah, I mean, as, as kind of bleak as this, might sound out of context. I, tr I try to worry about myself before I'm telling other people sure, what sure. to do, especially anymore. That being said, you know, if I can put myself out there and and be an inspiration for anybody in any way, then that's great. And certainly I could have used that, I guess, at various points, right? To see somebody and it was like, oh yeah, like I'm intimidated by lifting weights because who wouldn't be if you've never done it before? Uh, but here's this guy who like has good politics who has compassionate politics and while lifting weights doesn't mean you have to be a kind of aggressive um you know a nazi or or somebody who is trying to build strength in order to do violence you know that is uh, you know absolutely something that i think is beneficial towards anybody receiving that message this kind of leading by example is really the only thing that's possible in the current um, uh, communication network design. But I wanted to ask you about how you first began your fitness journey when you got into this stuff. You mentioned you had been doing it for over 10 years. That's quite a lengthy commitment. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I'm 37 now, but there, there's definitely in my mind when I think back, there's a split. I mean, there's a few different splits in my own conception of my kind of biography, right? But this is definitely a big one where it's like before I got into lifting and after. So I had a whole life. I mean, I was 23 when I got into lifting, which it's very funny to think of it this way now. But at the time, it seemed like I was very late to the game. It was like, I knew uh, people all around me were had been doing it since they were 12 or 13. And they were big and strong. And I was not I, I grew up very, very skinny. And um really thought of myself as just a nerd or just had no real connection to my physical existence. And I guess when I was in high school, I had tried, I'd made a couple of abortive attempts to like start lifting weights to make girls like me, but <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I had no guru to follow. I uh, like my dad gave me advice and he doesn't really know what he was doing. Um, you know, no disrespect to my father, but I think I tried it for like a couple of weeks at a time. And I was like, I don't know. I don't, this doesn't feel useful. And then I gave up. And my, my conception was like, well, this is just how I am. I was born into this life. I'm, I'm an intellectual and that's 
in opposition to physical existence. And so uh, there's nerds and there's jocks and I'm this one and those people are that one. And that went on, you know, through high school, through college, and it was after college. And it's really hard to pinpoint, but the environment existed at that point uh, on the internet that so this was like late 2000s. And that environment was somewhat new. And I think I was thinking about this today as I was kind of getting ready for this conversation. I think there's a very interesting history to be written there by somebody, maybe somebody like you, or maybe uh, our friend Brad Trammell could dive into this. But the history of physical culture or strength training culture from the, the late 20th century into the 21st century and, and how these internet communities grew and flourished, which I think the history of this and the, and the characters involved in this stuff has a lot to do also with the, the kind of political associations that these things took on. But mm. yeah, in the late 2000s, there were these flourishing message boards and communities, which I guess have only, I don't know, honestly, I haven't checked in on a lot of the places I used to post in a long time, but I, I found my way to these forums, right? And I guess the, the bottom line of the epiphany I had was like, I can use my posting brain and my intellectual brain and my reading brain that I use to like teach myself music or teach myself to program. And I can use that same approach to teach myself to lift weights. I mean, the joke I make about it is like seeing uh, the other guys in the gym who were really big and strong and successful and thinking like, okay, really dumb people can figure out how to lift weights. So like if they can do it, <laughs> I'm really smart. So like I can, I can think my way through this. So that was my approach. Like I bought, I read books, you know, I mean, I read Starting Strength cover to cover, and that was really, really important for me at the time. I was going to ask. Yeah, I mean, I was a Starting Strength guy. You're browsing message boards yeah, at that I time? Yeah, I was posting on yeah. startingstrength.com. I met Mark Griffitho a couple times. No way. And I was very much a, a zealous convert to that kind of stuff. That was it. And, and then I started to see that progress, right? That, that very objective, measurable progress where I'm putting more and more weight on the bar. And the other really key milestone that I can remember is I, when I started, I was still intimidated. I was still uh, weak and shaky and, and not flexible, but I felt armed with this knowledge, right? The things I had read and, and the, the message boards and what have you. So that kind of gave me uh, enough confidence to, to keep doing it. But in that early period, it was still intimidating. And I would have this experience of other guys coming up to me in the gym and giving me that unsolicited advice, oh, no. which I think... I think women have this problem even more, but definitely it happened to me. And they would say, oh, you know, what are you, you're doing this wrong. And it would really annoy me because I was like, I, I knew I was doing it right, or at least better than they were, but <laughs> I didn't have the results to show for it. But there was a point where that stopped happening because I had enough plates on the bar and yes. I, I guess I'd gained some weight. And I was like, wow, nobody says shit to me anymore in the gym. And it really felt like a triumph. Yeah, just in terms of like my personal journey, that was a powerful experience to have. I do relate to this thing you had mentioned before of this dichotomy between the intellectual and the physical. And I feel like, well, I had mentioned before we started recording that so much of my interest and experience in this space is kind of just browsing message boards as like a internet lurker type of guy. And I've just, I've rotted my brain with a lot of bro science by now, just like really, really terrible ideas. And I also, I did a, a lot of experimentation with my own body of trying out these crazy bordering on fringe science conspiracy yes. theory things of like how to uh, increase your testosterone levels and like quite a long arc of the channel from last year. But uh, in that, 
I realized that some of those things did work and I did feel better when I did them. Um, and then some of them were actually just crazy made up stuff. But it is quite difficult to tell the science from the fiction. But the people who are really good at it, um, they are quite intellectual because you have to know really a lot of science. You have to know a lot of nutrition. It's it's kind of a false dichotomy to think like, okay, I'm on the D&D character stat page and I can put my points into strength or into wisdom. But if I put them into wisdom, I can't put them back into strength. You can just have a scientific understanding of how to build strength and you don't have to like allocate stats to one point or another to do it well. You know, it's difficult to build muscle and then also to lose fat and to sculpt your body and to really, to to do it with intention and get the desired results. You know, that is, that is quite difficult. Yeah. I mean, at some really high level, right? I think my my existence before I, I was lifting was I was almost like this Cartesian dualist. You know, I felt like I was essentially just a brain, <laughs> and this body was was unconnected. And then that that really changed for me. You know, I feel like mind and body are are, are one now. But um, as far as science versus bro science, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I guess the kind of guys that I follow now in terms of my training approach, I should say that. I did start at this in this like starting strength vein and very kind of, like I said, kind of zealous and, and kind of purist and militant about it. And my training is very, very different from that now. Um, I really, I mean, I basically trained like a power lifter for a long time, even though I never competed in powerlifting and never really had any aspirations to. I do not train that way now. I, I Every so often, you know, if, if it makes sense, my in my programming, those lifts will come up or I'll, I'll test myself. But and, and this took a lot of work for me to kind of unlearn measuring my existence by how much I could squat, bench, and deadlift. But I really don't do that stuff anymore. Um, that said, I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea to start that way if you're new. I think there's a lot of uh, value in doing that stuff in terms of training your minds to be a person who pushes themselves in the gym. Um, but yeah, to her, I mean, some guys will be like, you know, very dismissive towards the science of exercise, which they have some fair points. I mean, like the field of nutrition and exercise science is still, I, I think it's fair to say, kind of young. And there's a lot of these studies have very limited power for a ton of different reasons. Uh, I mean, just for one, it's like a study done on untrained populations, which is often what these are done on. Um, like somebody who's stepping into the gym for the first time, anything will work, right? Anybody who's been yeah, lifting yeah. for a long time understands this. So you could give somebody something very silly to do and they've never trained before and you'll see results. That doesn't necessarily mean that that thing was was good. So yeah, some people are very dismissive of science. Other people are very kind of uh, slavishly devoted to reading studies and that that comes out as this kind of cultural rift sometimes it's like oh the lab coats who don't actually lift versus the lifters who don't pay <laughs> attention to the studies um but then i think the other big x factor in all this is kind of an obvious one but it's really hard to tease apart which is genetics and that's something that as i have gotten older than i used to be and have been doing this for longer that it, it looms larger in my mind it's like why don't why have i not had more results than i have had you know like i used to be really skinny now i'm like a little less skinny after lifting weights for a long time i mean i got pretty strong but it's all relative right like who am i comparing myself to the average person on the street or people who i see on my social media feed but um the point is again genetics can be used as this kind of out this kind of excuse a way to have an external locus of control right to say like oh well like i'm not making progress because my genetics are bad uh but of course it's a real thing you know some people are 
pretty big and strong without ever training. And then they train and they are freaks and they end up in the NFL or on the international competition or whatever. And that's not me. Like I have enough evidence at this point to know I'm not a genetic freak, but I do have some advantages. I don't know. It's, it's just like, where am I on the bell curve? And you can't really know. You just kind of get a sense. I think I'm probably somewhere in the middle, but there are times when I'm like, no, I'm way on the left side, like, which makes my, <laughs> makes my achievements, I think, in a way more impressive. Like, look at what I've done despite having genetics for just being weak and puny. But, you know, there's no real answer to that. And so, again, what, what do you do with that knowledge is still sometimes very confusing. It's like, does that mean you give up? Does that mean you work harder? Does that mean you just kind of try to factor that in when you're comparing yourself to somebody? I don't know. Like I said, this is still something that I'm kind of working through all the time, but it is a, a difficult kind of X factor when, when you're looking at what to do for yourself and trying to decide. And another part of why I, like I said, I just kind of shy away from telling other people what to do. I'll tell people what I've done and what I thought was good for me, but I'm a lot less comfortable than I used to be saying, this is, this is what you should do. It depends what your goals are, you know, it depends what mm -hmm. you're trying to get. You know, we're often not honest with ourselves about why we're in the gym. And, you know, if you're, if you're doing like the power lifter routine and you're, you're kind of setting your life by how much weight you can add to the bar every week, it might be a situation where you have an anxiety about something else and you're trying to like <laughs> feel like you have a little bit more of control. You know, that's, yeah. I, I mean, I'm sympathetic to it. I, to I totally get it. When I started lifting, I mean, I did it a little bit in, in high school, on and off when I was younger, but um, I started a pretty serious program with Brad in, I think, like 2014 or 15. And, and we were doing pretty much that, you know, we were like really lifting heavy. And at the end of it, you know, we were putting up pretty impressive numbers in, you know, for doing it for such a short time, because I had not seriously, seriously trained uh, before that. But when I think back to that particular window, that slice, those few years, that was so incredibly precarious, mm. you know, and, and it was kind of like, it really was like a way to feel like you're in control and you're steering the ship. Now, this is obviously several years later, my relationship, my relationship to this stuff is so much different. I think it's probably a lot healthier as well. Because when I go now, I do, I don't think of it as like, oh, I just, I want to hit this number. I want to hit this new PR. I think of it as like, I'm building a sculpture in slow motion and I'm like crafting my body to be this thing where like, okay, I want to get a little bit more width on my lats and I want to build out, I want to do more on my shoulders. And I think about it of within the next six weeks, what do I want to shift the shape into? You know, I think of it as like an aesthetic pursuit. And, and now, I mean, part of social media also is that like you have to be and perform and make yourself every day, right? Whether it's through like, a selfie or through fit pics or, or whatever, but um, it is, it's constant. It's, it's ongoing. You're, you're making yourself in this way and you're, you're crafting an aesthetic, an identity, a brand of sorts. Yeah. What, what is the program that you're doing now? Cause obviously uh, if you were doing starting strength many, many years ago, uh, what yeah. is your relationship to this stuff now? What are your goals in the short term? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you, but I, I want to point out, first of all, that what you, what you just said, I mean, totally true, but it's funny because it is exactly what Arnold says in early on in, in Pumping Iron, as maybe some of these listeners will remember when he's talking to the camera and he's like, it's like you're a sculptor and you want to put <laughs> yes. more, more size on <laughs> <Yes>. the deltoids <laughs> and the sculptor can, can slap some clay, but you have to do more reps. So yeah, I mean, I think, 
I mean, for, Pumping Iron is a great film. If you've never seen it, I really think that it makes bodybuilding make a lot of sense in a way. And it definitely, I mean, this is my attitude before I got into all this stuff was very negative and, and skeptical. And it seemed like such a meaningless, superficial pursuit. But I, th I think that's actually a really good film at, at kind of getting across what motivates somebody in exactly this way you're talking about to kind of have this almost artistic um, or, or not, not almost truly artistic uh, view of their own physical form. But okay, I mean, my programming now, I'm doing, I'm in this thing from this guy, Paul Carter. I don't know if people are, have heard of him. I, I was aware of him for a while. I think his, his blog, his, his Instagram is called Lift Run Bang. And I think he had a blog under that name. So I'd been aware of this guy for a while. And I want to give a kind of um, partial endorsement or uh, there's some caveats to it. But basically, the way I describe his, his programming, the, it's about hypertrophy, you know, and, and strength is a means to that end. But hypertrophy is the end as opposed to starting strength and associated things where strength is the end and hypertrophy might happen. And the relationship between those two is kind of complicated and we don't need to get into it. But the or, or maybe it, it sounds it's confusing because it's like, well, bigger muscles, a stronger muscle. How is there a difference? But there is a difference in terms of the mindset. And I, I think a big difference and that affects the exercise selection. It affects the way you do reps. It affects a lot of things. So essentially, Paul's programming, the exercise selection is about stability. It's about um, finding optimal movements to exhaust a particular muscle. And it's about going all the way to failure, to true muscular failure. So like, whereas in a starting strength, a powerlifting style program, you squat because you want to get a bigger squat and you want to increase the amount of weight you can move on that movement. And then you might do accessory movements. But again, the purpose is I can move more weight on a squat to the standards of powerlifting rules. Whereas the programming I'm doing now with Paul Carter, I'm going to leg press and I'm going to do leg extensions because the point is to make my quads bigger. And if I can have more stability, like in a squat, there's this long chain, a kinetic chain between the bar travel through your torso and down to your hips and your quads. And if your low back is a weak point, you're going to fail because of your low back without failing because of your quads. Whereas like if you're on a leg extension, there's no point of failure besides your quads, except, you know, you, you give up, which is the other thing. Like mentally, it's very different. I don't go in saying I'm going to do five reps or I'm going to do five sets of five. The way this programming is prescribed is he gives you a rep range and you load it up, but you go until failure. So I'm going to load a weight that I think I can do for eight. But if I do eight, I'm going to try to do nine. And if I can complete that ninth rep, I'm going to try to do 10. And that is a really big mental shift. And especially for those lower body movements, really, really difficult if you've never done it before to leg. I, it took me, I don't know how long really of being on this program before I think I actually was able to leg press to failure because it starts to fucking hurt real bad long before yes. you actually can't do another one. Or if you're me, like I've been very lucky. I've had very few injuries in the gym, but I've had a couple. And I think once that happens too, it, it gives you, it makes you afraid that you're going to get hurt. And definitely there's your brain will start telling you, I need to bail on this set before I get hurt. But most of the time, that's that voice is wrong. You you keep going and you don't get hurt. But especially again, if it's a leg press as opposed to a squat, you're more likely to get hurt on a squat because there's a lot more uh, a lot more getting loaded in terms of your core and 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 what have you. So if you're on uh, a leg press, it's easier to push yourself all the way to failure than a squat. But that's purely a mental game. So 
yeah, that's the big difference. I mean, the exercise selection is very different. It's about being as as creating as much stability as possible. Uh, like the the way this this stuff was presented to me when I was first learning about starting strength is like, okay, the squat and deadlift are good because they train a large amount of different muscles at once. All the compound lifts, yeah. Yeah, my current way of thinking is that makes them not ideal because why would I want to spread that load over all these different muscle groups versus focusing it on one and then moving on to something else? So I want to, if I'm training my glutes, like I did today, a uh, barbell, you know, glute bridges in the Smith machine, and that is only hitting my glutes. The whole point of the setup is to keep your quads out of it, your hamstrings out of it, and then you can go to failure until your glutes can't produce force anymore. And so again, it's just a very different philosophy. And I find for me, I'm feeling less beat up training this way. I, so, and, and, and now I have to give my, my, you know, kind of disclaimers. I've been doing this for a few months now, so I'm enjoying it. I, I'm making some progress on paper. I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm saying this is, you know, the, the one true path and that it's absolutely better. But for me, yeah, I'm feeling less aches and pains. Um, I'm, and I'm, I'm having fun. The workouts are not that long which can be nice. I mean, it's like 60 to 90 minutes usually in the gym. How many days a week is that? I, currently four days a week, but I think the last yeah. cycle was was five days a week. But yeah, it's a, it's a very different mindset and it's taken a lot of effort for me to change my thinking in terms of what are my goals? What is my approach? What is my mindset during that set? How do I approach every rep? And it's like slow negatives, you know, whereas... Before it might have been like my goal is to hit that rep, you know, to to put write down five in my notebook. Now my goal is yeah, yeah. not necessarily my goal is to reach failure, and so I'm trying to like subject my muscles to tension because that, according to Paul and and the studies that he cites, right, mechanical tension is what he's always talking about. That's the driver of hypertrophy, um, as opposed to anything else. So you want to subject whatever target muscle you're training. Uh, to the maximum amount of mechanical tension. So, I mean, all this stuff makes a lot of sense to me and it feels good. So that's what I'm doing. But yeah, it, it took some unlearning. Uh, it's still a process to not be like, all right, I'm going to have the biggest deadlift in the gym. Because it's also tempting a lot of times to like cut your range of motion short. I mean, if anybody's seen this in the gym, a guy on the leg press and he loads up eight plates and he moves it two inches. Sure. And yeah. it's like, well, that's not really training. You're not lengthening the target muscle at all. And so this is about like slow negative, full range of motion. I mean, not exaggerated range of motion, but a full range of motion and reaching failure wherever that is. So sometimes it's like, wow, I thought, I think of myself as a strong guy. I thought I could load this up with more weight and you can't, but as long as you're hitting failure and you're making progress, that's the key here. So that's what I'm doing these days. And I'm finding it pretty compelling for, for now. I'm in a transitional phase myself. That sounds, yeah, targeting specific muscles. It kind of sounds like you're talking about the clay too, of like sure. you want to build up the the quads or the glutes and, and target certain areas. I find that appealing now. I think you probably need a decent starting basis to be able to really uh, uh, do that. Yeah. So Yeah. And Paul would say the same thing. Are, so just so I understand the program, are, you're, adding, you're adding weight yes. to these lifts Every time. Yes. Okay. And what is what is the rep range on what he's talking about if you're going to failure? It varies. I mean, I think for the most part, it's like six to eight, but he'll prescribe different mm. rep ranges. I mean, one of the things that he talks about a lot is that I think in the past few years, there's been some research on this that really um, 
a lot of rep ranges, a wide range of rep ranges are effective for hypertrophy up to 30 reps with the caveat that you have to approach failure or hit failure. And then so his reasoning is that's with that being true, higher rep sets cause more fatigue, which I think a lot of the kind of common wisdom is the opposite that like low rep sets cause more fatigue because you're using heavy weight. But apparently uh, what, what there's research showing is that it's the opposite. It's the central fatigue is caused by longer sets, which I don't know, makes, makes some sense. So a set of 30 reps to failure causes more fatigue than a set of five reps to failure. So that being said, yeah, it's, it's more of like, uh, you're usually in like the six to 10 rep range. But again, his instructions are if you hit 10 reps, and you're not at failure, you keep going. And if you find that it takes you 30 reps to get to failure, well, you just estimated really poorly, and you need to add a lot of weight next time. But the key thing is really getting to failure. Yeah, I was looking at some of these um, classic bodybuilder routines, and they approached it very differently for people who are, Mm -hmm. you know, just very 101. uh, If you're if you're going in and you're doing uh, four to six reps, then you're going to build strength and you're going to put um, higher numbers on the bar. Uh, and if you're trying to build hypertrophy, then the, the logic is that you do more reps and, and more sets. But they would do uh, these classic bodybuilders, like pretty insane routines where you'd go, you'd be in the gym for like 45 minutes, but you do like eight sets of eight. Mm. And just the total amount of volume was really, really staggered. I mean, the, the research seems to be, uh, these things are constantly being overturned. Yes. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I feel like you have to kind of just do it and just see what works for you. It's, but also that's like, that's kind of the era of social media that we're at. Like the incentive structure of social media is basically profitable, like lying, like yeah. finding ways to deceive people and sell them supplements that don't work. So there's a level of like fitness is individualized and it's also genetic and there's going to be things that work for you that don't work for somebody else. But uh, yeah, it's kind of this like collapse of trust where you can't find a reputable person to sell it to you because it preys on a lot of people's insecurities. So you kind of just have to like try something out for a three month period that seems reasonable, then evaluate, see if you want to do it again. And um, you kind of shake up your routine so that you don't get too stuck in, in one thing. I'm kind of, I'm between programs right now. And I've been doing a little bit of testing my strength with the big lifts and, and low reps just to make sure that it's still there after having been off on this other program for a while. Uh, and I'm really concerned about my nutrition also, because I realized I kind of took a personal inventory a few months back and I realized that, you know, I feel like I'm doing a lot, but I'm not getting nearly enough protein and I'm not eating enough. And I, I feel like I just, I do this all day. I'm just like, I'm meal prepping and I'm like <laughs> cooking and I'm constantly doing dishes. Um, but I, I took like, okay, just record for like two days. What are you actually eating? And it's like nowhere near the target. You know, hmm. it, it really was like, I, I did have to just start supplementing more with uh, protein and just adding like a way to my coffee in the morning and, and things like that. Just having this conscious effort that like, yeah, this is the thing that's going to structure your life if you want to be able to see these results and yeah, do it carefully. Yeah. I mean, I have, I've had long periods of logging all my nutrition, which I mean, you know, was, was a new experience for me at some point years ago. And I, it's not like I've done it consistently all the time for for 10 years or whatever but i mean my for the last several years i guess i don't know things were kind of weird for me because i had an injury a few years ago i guess this was like my most significant injury i uh tore cartilage in my shoulder and i had to get surgery oh, geez. and um wow. it was a real bummer but i'm 100 percent recovered 
Did you do it in the gym? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a chronic injury, not like an acute one. So it's not like I can tell you on some day I was on the bench press and I tore my shoulder, but I started to develop pain. And, you know, it was this long dance of like, is this something that is serious or is it going to, is it going to go away on its own? And you hope that it will, but it's not. And you get an MRI and then they're like, oh yeah, you have some fucked up shit, but like, we don't recommend surgery. And then a few months later, it's worse and you get another MRI. So anyway, it was kind of a long process. And the point of the story is I, it was a big setback for me. And then just when I'd kind of resolved that setback, it was COVID and couldn't go to the gym anymore. So that was another setback. But the point I was getting at was my general approach of the last few years is I'll, I'll bulk for some part of the year. Meaning, you know, if you haven't heard that term before, I'm, I'm trying to gain mass. I'm trying to gain muscle mass, but that comes with fat gain unavoidably. And then during some other, you know, like a seasonal thing as I approach you, the summertime. You bulking though, I've followed you for a while. You're always, you're like lean year round though. What, how, how aggressive is this bulk? You're not eating well, eight hamburgers a day. That's it's I don't funny, man. That. I mean, this is a whole other uh, topic of conversation, but that's very relative, right? So like I finished a cut um, earlier, like uh, the beginning of July and I went and I got a DEXA scan, which I found a place in, in Manhattan that does it. And that DEXA scan, it stands for dual energy x-ray anthropometry. It's considered the kind of most accurate method of assessing your level of body fat. And I'd actually done it for the first time in San Francisco a couple years ago before I moved here. And the most interesting thing is doing it at different points in time to see how you've progressed. And you might, uh, it's common to have like a, a scale, a bathroom scale that will tell you your body fat that usually uses electrical impedance where it runs a current through you and then it does some equations. And those things are, I think, very inaccurate um, and very inconsistent depending on like your level of hydration and stuff like that. So DEX is considered like the most accurate thing you can do. But um, it's interesting my results from the DEXA in San Francisco were very different from the one in New York because it was a different model of machine. Like just, they, it didn't make sense when you compared them. So then I, but I've done two in New York now and I'm a little bit leaner than I was last year, but it said I'm like 14 and percent body fat, which I felt like I was pretty lean. But my guess based on just like internet forum knowledge would have been like, oh, I think I'm like 9%. <laughs> um, so the number doesn't really mean anything, but yeah, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm definitely a guy who has an easier time losing than gaining and i grew up like i said really skinny and you know you can see my abs to some extent year round but then i look at my my feed right and it's guys who were like on drugs or they're prepping for bodybuilding contests and i'm like fuck i am fat you know like i am not (laughs) i need to cut but um i mean i spent the first several years of my lifting career bulking and just to put some numbers on it like i was six foot like 145 before I started lifting. So, oh my God, not unhealthy, but I was a skinny, yeah, I, I, lower end of normal weight if we're going to use BMI. I, I was a skinny guy. And then over three years or so of lifting and just really dedicated bulking. I mean, I, I was doing gallon of milk a day no, for a while, oh, wow. which I don't <laughs> really, yeah, I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. But I, I mean, I was skinny because I didn't know how to eat right? It's not like yeah, I had a tapeworm. Yeah. I, I was skinny because I was eating like a skinny guy. So I stopped doing that. And I got up to 205, I think at my peak. And I was fucking strong at that weight. That's incredible. Hit, Wait, that's a huge amount. Yes. Wow. And, and that experience wow. for me, just in terms of like my conception of myself and my interactions with other people, 
was interesting. Like people treated me very different when I weighed 205 versus 145. But then after that, I cut for the first time and got down to like 175 and had abs. And that again was very different than what I felt like at either of the other two weights. And I've been more at that range for a long time since then. But um, when I was 205, I was strong. I mean, I did my best ever like one rep maxes around that body weight. So like a 525 deadlift, a 405 squat, and a 290 bench, I think were my all-time best. Wow, so you're, you're really powerlifting. That's, I mean, yeah, again, it's relative. You know, like I felt I was really proud of myself and that's more than most people are doing at most gyms. But if I, I think were to step into a competition, I wouldn't be like winning big competitions with those numbers. But I, I, was, I was chubby at 205, you know? Again, like in my conception, I, could, I felt kind of sluggish. I mean, I ha- you couldn't see my abs. I had a little bit of a gut and I didn't like feeling that way. And so, I don't know, now I, I feel that way at even lower weights, which is, I don't know what that says about my emotional state, but... Um, it's hard to not get in your head about it. It's hard, it's hard sure. to not because you, I, I mean, at a certain point, it's like you realize that you can recraft yourself, you know, yes. you can kind of move the pieces around. And so you, you kind of just, it's, it's inevitable in the process. You're like, well, if I can rearrange it, maybe I'd like it a little bit nicer like this, or it's like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You just end up pushing the pieces around. Endlessly. But that knowledge too, I think, can be emotionally beneficial. It's like you you're, know that you're in a temporary state, right? It's like, well, I'm bulked now and I can't fit into... This is a big thing for me because if you follow me online, you know that I'm also into clothes and I like dressing well and like I like everything to fit really well. And I have a couple other... This is a whole other like community of with its own weird things. But Do you have a bulk wardrobe and a cut wardrobe? I mean, <laughs> sort of at this point I do. But like I was going to say, I have friends from like the internet menswear world uh, and lifting is not that common. So it's like a a niche within a niche, but I know some guys who are also really into menswear and also into lifting. And so, you know, we can really connect over this stuff, but yeah, it feels bad to not fit into your favorite pants. I mean, I'm sure this applies to everybody, but if it's like, Oh, I, these are like, Oh, I got these pants made to measure, you know, they, they fit me perfectly. And now I can't fucking wear them or I go to the tailor a lot, I guess. But, uh, yeah, that's just that that's difficult psychologically to deal with when you have a wardrobe that fits you really well. But I, I do have some some larger pants and some smaller ones for when my my waist size fluctuates. It is actually they're pretty big margins when you when you really do it for like uh, six months at a time. It's like, yeah. yeah, your body really does transform. I think I for me at this point, just being a public person and then streaming and posting and like being your own brand avatar, which is unfortunately the reality of social media. Um, I realize that I can't, I can't really bulk and cut in the way that I, I used to. It's just, it's like, it's too much in my head and I can kind of see it's like, I'm just, I'm looking fucking too, I'm looking too round around this corner. And I really, you know, I liked how it looked like a uh, six weeks ago better. So I'm kind of, I'm right? trying to just like maintain good margins and good macros now to, to craft. And I'm like, just be patient, just be patient yeah. and you're going to get there. But um, sometimes it is really frustrating. It's like I can't get over that ledge and I can't like I'm trying to get this lift up just a few a few numbers, get that extra rep and you can't do it. And it's like I really just need to like eat some bigger meals to like fuel my body and as I'm going to put on more more fat and then like uh, cut it off later. So you have to kind of. Yeah. Managing your own mental state is also a big part of this thing very much. That's a really weird uh, constraint, right? That what you were just mentioning. And I, I don't know. 
I, I guess it's not something of, I would have related to a few years ago before I started, you know, doing a podcast. And look, I'm the first of all, it's an audio only medium. Second of all, I'm the producer. You don't even hear my voice. But like we're going on tour this fall, which I'm super excited about. And to some extent, from the way I post, you know, my image is part of my brand and what I do now. So I guess that all of a sudden there's this voice in my head being like, well, people think that this is how I look. So if I'm going to like go out on tour, I can't be too fat. You know, I know that I'm just bulking, <laughs> but people every so often see me somewhere and they're like, oh, young Jomsky. And then I don't want them to be like, damn, like he's looking sloppy. So it's a weird additional. Fell off. Uh, yeah. Fell I mean, off. It, it feels, it feels very goofy to say, but it makes me sympathize with people who exist in public as actors or any kind of performer where your, your face and your body is, is kind of part of your brand. And like I said, I, I just have the yeah, barest yeah. Um, kind of foot in this world, but it's something that w wouldn't have made sense to me. And, and now it kind of does. This is a bigger topic that I wanted to talk about. What role do aesthetics play in politics? Well, uh, so where this, I, I saw this kind of debate break out recently, maybe this, this crossed your radar. I think it was like a Starbucks uh, union picket where they had a guy in a furry costume yes, on yeah. it. And then there was this, I saw this argument, which I'm much better at this than I used to be. I didn't like read through all the comments or certainly not chime in. I, I mean, I'm a real reformed poster. But anyway, uh, I think that if I could sum up the two sides of the argument, I think it was one saying like, well, our movement, it's inclusive and this person's not hurting anybody. And like, they have as much right to be out front and on the picket line and like their politics are good and it's you're reactionary or you're being a fascist if you're dismissing them or saying we need to hide this person away just because you don't like their presentation. Whereas other people are like, this is, they're, it's just weird. It's off-putting. They're in a furry costume. Most people find that strange and doesn't right. draw them in. And so this person can be in the movement, but they shouldn't be the face of it. And I do think that in the abstract is like a legitimate debate to have. Um, and it is difficult. And I think we have to start by acknowledging that it's a difficult conversation, not necessarily just talking about furries, but aesthetics generally, right? And like who has, who deserves to be foregrounded or, you know, what, what look are we kind of endorsing or what range of looks are we kind of endorsing as part of our movement? Yeah, I don't have all the answers. That's the, that's the thing. Yeah, it's, it's about optics, right? This mm. is part of why, I mean, the uh, on the right, unlike the, the internet right, they've debates like this for a long time, right? Uh, if there's somebody who gets in front of a, a podium and waves a, a swastika, uh, this is very alienating to a large majority of people that they're trying to recruit to basically the same idea as a, a repackage, right? This is yeah. what was called the optics debate from, from many, many years ago. Uh, and so what you kind of painfully learn through some of these things is that, you know, we don't want to uh, exclude people from the movement, but there's a very large population of people who are going to be immediately turned off by having the furry as the spokesperson for this thing. Yeah. And so maybe that should be, um, we have to kind of start from reality if you really want to wield political influence in a, in a large, massive scale. The, I mean, I think as people who are, you know, you from the world of music, me from the world of art, we're cultural producers. What is, I think, difficult for people who come from creative life or creative backgrounds is that uh, the scale of the political movement that we're talking about is going to contain so, so many people that it is simply not possible to have a, 
homogenous culture across all of it, right? You, you're talking about organizing people along their material interests there. Uh, and there's going to be some furries in there. And then there's going to be people who are trade unionists. And then there's going to be people who uh, work at Starbucks and they're really big fans of tennis and uh, they don't care about bodybuilding or fur- furries or whatever. Uh, and it's got to include, it's got to include all of them. So what social media does is it can kind of, um, it can blow these things up in such a way where like, you know, the result was that the story became not that people were organizing in their workplace at Starbucks. It became that there was a furry in front of the protest. Uh, and so when you have to evaluate that against the, the current media ecosystem, it's, it's difficult. And, you know, it maybe to, to make this a little bit cartoonish, but uh, to make it literal, we're not talking about excluding people from healthcare if they can't bench press their body weight. You know yeah. what I mean? Like this, it's not that kind of program. We're just talking about having like in the same way that if you're really interested in a, a certain kind of subculture and you have a political conviction, you should probably just be more public about it. And, um, you know, this is one of those spaces that if we, if we slice it down the middle and it's get, gets pushed onto the other side, we're going to lose large swaths of people that need to be onboarded to a mass political movement. So totally. it becomes very important. YC, thank you so much for joining me. This is super fun. I'm actually about to go and do leg day this afternoon. Oh, hell yeah. So. I did mine this morning. <laughs> you did it this morning and you're still doing yeah. a podcast? Yeah. I mean, to me... Oh my goodness. Oh yeah. These days, well, I, usually I, I come home, I go to the gym in the morning, which is like new for me in the past couple of years. But, but yeah, thank you so much. This was super fun. You know, I don't, I definitely don't get a chance to talk about this kind of stuff very often. And, um, so it is, uh, this, this felt kind of, kind of nerdy in a really fun way. So I appreciate it. Okay. Yeah. So, well, the next one, uh, maybe we will do the actual meme and just, uh, do That'll it be in sick. the squad I mean, rack. With that would also the- <laughs> be <laughs> terrible sound in yeah, the storage unit be, like, too. The scene for pumping yeah. iron <laughs> where uh, it's Arnold and Ed Corny and they're squatting that I, I always think of that if I have to do a really heavy squat set and, and Arnold's like, come on, Eddie, let's get serious. Two more, two more. And, and Ed Corney has that sick mustache. You, every, anybody who's listening to this who has not seen Pumping Iron, you need to watch it. Um, but yeah, that's, we can... I think we'll show it on the Twitch stream, actually. Okay. We'll, have to, we'll do that in coordination with the episode. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I haven't seen it in a very long time. And when Lou, Lou Ferrigno is, is doing his overhead presses in his dingy Brooklyn basement gym, and he's, he's Arnold, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat him! <laughs> I'm going to beat him! And his, and his dad's yelling at him. Oh, man, what a great... It's, it's getting me fired up to think about it. Oh, man. Thanks, YC. This is, this is a blast. Greetings, you Matrix One.